0: Welcome to the Global Visions podcast. My name is Fiona Campbell, and I'm a section head for the Brown Journal of World Affairs, a biannual journal of international relations and foreign policy produced at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. The podcast seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are honored to be hosting our next guest of the podcast today, global women's rights expert Dr. Lina Abirafi. Dr. Avarafi is the former executive director of the Arab Institute for Women at the Lebanese American University. Prior to this, Lena spent over 20 years in development and humanitarian contexts in countries such as Afghanistan, Haiti, Democratic Republic of Congo, Papua New Guinea, and others. Her specific expertise is in ending violence against women. She speaks and publishes frequently on a range of women's issues and is listed in the Gender Equality Top 100 worldwide for 2018 and 2019. Dr. Avi Rafi, thank you for joining us. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background in the field and how you first became involved in GBV response and prevention work?
1: Well, I actually started when I was very young. The story goes back to my background and origins. I'm Lebanese and Palestinian, so I was born into conflict already, and certainly conflict around gender issues. I was raised between Saudi Arabia and the US, so already complicated enough. And it all crystallized for me in a class that I took in high school, actually, when I moved to the States. I was 14. I took a class called Comparative Women's History. And there, we didn't actually learn about women's history, but we learned about the history of violence against women. And that brought it all home for me. And I really started to understand what was going on everywhere around the world for women and girls in every country, in every time, in every context, every religion, and that absolutely no one was immune to it. And I was mad. You know, It was really anger that galvanized the action for me um, where I said, okay, I, I can't accept this kind of world. I don't want to live in this kind of world and I'll do whatever it takes to keep this from getting any worse. And here I am more than 30 years later, and I can't say that I have stopped it or that it hasn't gotten worse because in many ways it has, but I'll keep fighting. So that was the moment that brought it all home for me.
0: And that's such an inspiring kicking off point, too, I think, for many people in this space. It is that anger that gets you going and that galvanizes that at first step. Absolutely. And you never know, you know in what context. I mean,
1: it happened for me in a high school class, but there's bound to be something. You know, I keep saying there is that like that one thing that you you hear, or you learn or you come to understand that you cannot accept There is always the one thing that, that pushes you beyond everything else where you say, okay, hang on. That's too much now. This I cannot tolerate. And that that's where the passion is, you know, and that's where, that's where your magic is because there's your calling, right? There's your purpose. That's what you're supposed to do because, because you can't not do it. It makes you so upset
0: that you can't imagine doing anything else. And I guess for future and current generations of women who are living through the COVID-19 pandemic, there are obviously a lot of these galvanizing moments. Um, You've written extensively about the impacts of COVID-19 on women and girls worldwide, from increased anti-refugee sentiment to heightened risks of domestic violence. Could you speak a little bit on this and how this has developed over the course of the pandemic and, and what you've seen can help reduce these increased rates of violence against women?
1: Well, what we know is that the pandemic is an emergency. And having worked in so many emergencies around the world, what I can tell you is that any emergency setting will take the people who are already marginalized, the people who are already vulnerable, people who are already discriminated against or suffering in some way, and it will make their lives much worse. And it, there's no exception to that. I've seen that in Afghanistan. I've seen that in Hurricane Katrina. I've seen that in the aftermath of the Haiti earthquake. I've seen that in, we're seeing that in Lebanon now with what's happening with the economic crisis. So COVID was no different. And we could have anticipated all of that. And especially when it came to lockdown measures, because the assumption that the world made overall was that if we just stayed home, we'd be safe. And that, that makes a dangerous assumption that home is safe for everyone. And, you know, I think it should be. It has to be. We have to fight to make sure that it is. But the reality for too many women is that it's not. That's not the case. You are not safe at home. So when you say stay home and stay safe, what you're actually doing is locking people down in situations that may, already be violent uh, where that violence is going to be exacerbated and they have nowhere to go and no outlet and no support and no safety nets and no and no systems of, of protection and you're going to create new forms of violence because in every single time of insecurity conflict or crisis, it seems that intimate partner violence increases because that is how people tend to to understand and rationalize these tragedies. Now I will never, I will never understand why that is the case, but that seems to be a global response and you see it everywhere so consistently that it is almost the ugliest byproduct of human nature. Certainly one that I can't accept, but one that happens far too often, more uh, more often than just a coincidence, you know? And so when things started to escalate with the pandemic, and people were trapped at home, women are trapped at home, cases were increasing and you couldn't go anywhere and you couldn't call anyone, you had no privacy, you couldn't get out, couldn't go. things were closing down, resources that were dedicated to women's spaces and services and hotlines and shelters were being diverted to the COVID response. I mean, nobody really knew what to do. And it was only until a few months into the response that we started hearing a different kind of language to say, well, if home isn't safe for you, it's not your fault, and you know here's what you can do, but it was, it was too little, too late. As always is with every single response I've been in, it is like no one listens to a minute at the beginning, and they realize after the fact that they should have done so from the first. So we constantly lose out on understanding women's lived experiences in these kinds of emergencies, and in doing so, we make life for them so much worse.
0: And interesting that you mentioned this kind of global iteration of violence, something that there's no country in the world where this doesn't exist. And obviously, you've you've worked in so many different contexts. So what sort of differences have you noticed in approaches to gender equality, not just during the pandemic, but previously and and what you see varying from country to country. And then also, what what can we learn from those sort of varied approaches and different understandings?
1: Well, you know what i've what I've learned overall is, first of all, no country has dealt with it fully in the way that they should, not one single country. No country wants to face it. You know, no one wants to look at these ugly truths. It is much easier, especially in so-called developed countries, to other the violence and say, well, that doesn't happen here, and that doesn't happen to us, and that's only other women over there, or Afghanistan, or, or Mali, or wherever, but that, that's not our people. No, no, not here, not, not us, not now. And that's not true. So there is a dangerous level of ignorance in the so-called developed countries that they are immune or they are they are above that or they are past it. And that is not the case. What I do see is that you have to meet people where they are in countries. You know, there are there are different countries that have different levels of understanding and engagement and, and movements and commitment and laws and services and conversations about it. And some are doing better. Some are doing better, clearly. Um, and other countries are just not prepared to deal with it. And they have a lot of other obstacles. Conflict and poverty certainly present obstacles. Patriarchal attitudes and discriminatory beliefs. So-called culture, even though I don't like to use that as a, as a blanket statement. Religion, where it is interpreted against women. you know, All sorts of excuses that people use for the continuation of violence and, and to cover it up. So how to meet those people in their own sociocultural context, right? I know that when I worked in Afghanistan, Afghan women were very receptive to conversations about their rights as long as they understood them within the context of the religion, which was Islam. And, you know, I say to people, whatever ways, whatever framework makes sense to you, there will be entry points there. You can always find it. You can always find local interpretations, you can always find local feminist movements, you can always find local activists who are fighting that fight. And it is in the end, not for us, the people who are the the imported uh, expertise in abstraction, right? I mean, we are people like people like myself, who live everywhere and nowhere, work in so many different countries, and we're from none of them, We are useful to an extent, but unless we are listening to and learning from the local leadership, meaning women who are already on the ground doing the work, then we're not doing it right. Because our job is to actually take a backseat to provide the tools and resources to fuel and to amplify the indigenous feminist movements that are already there. And if we do not see them there, it is because we are not looking, not because they don't exist. So that is the thing that I've learned, that you can really take your cue from people. They will tell you exactly what it is they need what kind of help you should provide. And if you aren't able to provide that help, then you shouldn't be there because anything else isn't helping.
0: What kind of not only traditional, but non-traditional methods have you seen to protect and advocate for women and girls' rights that have been surprisingly effective to you? And, And what have you learned from these women living through conflicts and emergencies themselves? What have you learned from those experiences on the ground?
1: What I see is that women are incredibly resourceful. And you know, when you think things aren't going on, I mean, that's when there is the strongest underground movement. Like let's use the example right now of Afghanistan, right? And once again, we've got Taliban 2.0 having taken over the country. Once again, women and girls are home. Once again, girls are kept from education and all opportunities. They're back at home. And this is it's even worse than it was before because they had their taste of so-called freedom and this expectation of liberation that obviously didn't fully materialize. But in Taliban 1.0. it, it, what women did was formed underground schools, educate girls, put their own lives at risk in order to do so. I mean, we all heard about it. And not only that, the idea that, you know, for something that from, for us from the outside, what looks like maybe is a a passivity or a lack of, of interest or commitment or action actually is never, ever the case. Um, And in Afghanistan specifically, Afghan women are, are revolutionaries. They knew very well how to get things done, how to make sure the schools were running. I mean, they are the ones, I remind everybody very often, that alerted people to the Taliban in the first place. It was right. because of Afghan women and the cameras they smuggled under their burqas in 1996, filming abuses of the Taliban. That is how we, we outside of the country, came to understand what was happening. So they were the ones who, who set things in motion they set the call that that really at that point ignited the world everybody started paying attention because otherwise we would not have known what was going on over there because afghanistan just wasn't on our radar just like so many of these countries are not on our radar so it is the idea of that it's incumbent upon us to pay attention to understand what's going on in the world to understand that work is being done if, even if we don't see it often in the most subtle ways and those tend to be extremely powerful
0: That's so well put and and I wanna push a little bit more on the space that you occupy in your own work and what you do to uplift these voices and really listen to these voices. You've said that you're an accidental, accidentally in academia um, and you're at the intersection of academia and activism. So why do you find that space so important and, and what hopes do you have for the future of that intersection?
1: Well, it is a fascinating space. And I have to say that I inherited it. When I joined the Arab Institute for Women as executive director in 2015, I wasn't planning on a career in academia. I mean, I had the academic credentials, but I really thought I was a field person through and through. And I had in many ways dismissed academia as a, a key player. Never in any country that I had been in did I target academic institutions as partners or allies. I was too busy looking for the emergency actors and women's groups. And you know there was a reason for that, certainly in the countries I was in. But at the same time, when I inherited this academic institute, I thought there is something special about this place. And specific to that one, because the Arab Institute for Women uh, is now almost 50 years old. It'll be 50 next year. It was the first of its kind in the region, one of the first in the world, a real pioneer in terms of women's rights. And because it was born in the context of conflict, uh, because there has continuously been conflict in Lebanon and the region, the Institute could never afford to be fully academic. Otherwise, it would just, it would be useless. It would be elitist. It would be ivory tower. It would be naive. None of those things applied. So it was born in a time of chaos, and so it had to respond Fortunately, the very first director made the decision to respond to all of that by creating research and academic programs and and educational offerings that would reflect the lived reality of women and girls at that time. So it was, it was never researched for the sake of research or as a hollow academic exercise, but something that would positively, positively contribute to social change and policy change in the region. Otherwise there was no point. And so I continued in that vein and really brought it into its feminist purpose to say, you know, unless we are having these critical conversations that are meaningful for women and girls right now, we are useless. And what is nice about this academic institute and so many others is that we don't realize very often when we go into these countries that the NGO landscape is very polarized. Uh, They are forced due to donor priorities to scramble for scraps and fight for very small pockets of funding. Um, And so we pit them against each other inadvertently undermining the movements and the causes that these organizations support. Because we throw around very little money and expect everybody to fight to get it. And so you're not building a, a setup where there is collaboration, where there is a, a social network of GBV actors or you know, those who support political participation or refugee causes. or what you're, you're actually fragmenting an already very polarized landscape. So when you are an academic institute, you're not competing for that same money. You're not on the front lines. You're not doing immediate response type of work. But you can be a neutral player in a very polarized landscape. And so we use that. We used our good offices to bring people together to say, all right, there aren't many of us. There aren't enough of us. What we need to be doing is speaking to each other and working together. Even if those on the outside donors and partners and, and the bigger agencies don't want to help us get together, we will get ourselves together. So we did things like create coordination mechanisms where there were none, where a uh, organizations were uh, working in opposition to each other and not sharing information. So one example is political participation. There were very few actors and everybody was out doing different things and sometimes overlapping and sometimes undermining each other. And so we said, why don't you all come over to our place? Let's use our, our space to bring you over to have these conversations and no one has to share what they don't want, but let's at least start talking. And we did that for the first few months and everybody got to know each other. And we brought out coffee and cookies and I think that certainly helps. And (laughs) I do, I call it coffee and cookie diplomacy because it actually works. When you bring people together in a neutral space To just converse, to share information. And then we said, after a couple of months, we said, you know what? This belongs to the National Women's Machinery. They're the ones who should be in the lead. And we're all, we're undermining their effort and they're already marginalized enough. So why don't we all continue this where the Institute, where we as the Institute will be a member, but not the lead, not the convener anymore. You guys continue because now you talk to each other and you like each other and you're ready to work together. And we'll be a part of it, just like everybody else. We'll be a member around that table with you. So that was critical because we were able to bring people together. And that's the kind of work that academic institutes can do. And then, you know, the research is important. You know, I don't like data for data's sake at all. You know, I don't like, especially when I'm working on GDD, for people to say, well, if we don't know how many, then we're not going to do anything about it. And I think, oh my Mm -hmm. goodness, you know, we know there are tons. And I, you know, I often wonder with data, like what's the magic number? Is it, if I tell you there are 10 women if I tell you there are a hundred, if I tell you there are a thousand, like what's the, what's the number that's going to trigger you into action? Cause I w- right. I can give you that, you know, so for me that it's kind of meaningless, but at the same time, what we can do is be very careful about how we produce data that is going to generate concrete outcomes. And when we are doing any research or asking questions or, or conducting surveys or just poking and prodding people and, and asking for their time and contributions that we ask. As few questions as possible, and that every single question leads to some kind of a concrete answer that will bring a result, something that we can action, something that we can use, and that we feed that back to the communities after taxing them and asking for their time and their input over and over again, because they don't realize how often these things happen, um, that we actually go back to them because our primary responsibility is for the communities. So, you know, you can be as um, an academic institute, a very conscientious actor and kind of right some of those wrongs that are committed actually not just by academic institutes, but also by NGOs and others in the context of emergencies, especially where everybody needs to be surveyed to assess their needs and nobody's needs are ever met.
0: And how have your experiences, your time in Beirut, your, your Lebanese and Palestinian roots informed your perspectives on what? the path towards gender equality looks like you've had these cookies and coffee diplomacy moments what have you taken away from this well the idea that you know people are a lot more than
1: they seem you know i come from such a complicated background with so many hyphens and so many layers and so many views and and so many experiences that have made up who i am and what i believe and i think you know that it the the more we understand people in their multidimensional realities, the better off we'll be. You know, we're living in an era now where it is so dangerous to, you know, you slap a label onto somebody and that's they only will you know, they only will wear that one label, or you condemn them to that one name and that's it. You know, I think we are um, uh, we are far too polarized, and if we find that we pay attention to each other as individuals, we can probably meet in the middle much more comfortably because. You know, there never is one simple answer. And I'll give you a concrete example in the passing of Madeleine Albright that just happened, right? I wanted to investigate. I, I write a blog once a week and I usually do it based on stuff that is interesting to me. And that's obviously about women and relevant to women's rights. And so I said, all right, well, you know, can we call her a feminist? Was she a feminist? You know, it depends on what definition of feminism you're working with, depends on who you ask, but, you know, can we hold both truths at the same time? That she made great contributions for women, that she was a pioneer in her field, that she was the first of her kind, that she opened the doors for other women, she believed in supporting other women, but also that she had foreign policy flaws that prevented her from being fully embraced by many feminists um, and by human rights activists as well, her policy in Iraq and so on. So can we understand somebody in their their full multidimensionality, right? And I think that we can. And I don't, you know, for me, it wasn't to say, well, uh, you know, I've taken a quick look at her life because I mean, who are we to really assess somebody's life, right? I said, I'm just going to look at the facts that I can find and throw them out there. And, you know, everybody is going to decide based on their own framework, right? In the end, like, your feminism is going to be different from mine and you're going to assess Madeleine Albright or whoever based on how you see the world and how you see your feminist contribution to it. But ultimately, you know, my argument would be this, that the people who criticize the most and the most strongly and the most loudly are the ones who are actually doing very little. You know, so the people who are... who claim to be more feminist than thou actually aren't really doing all that much about it. So, you know, the important thing is, are you are you being as feminist as you can be in the space that you occupy and the time that you have? You know, I can safely answer yes to that. And I, my track record shows that. I hope the other people who point and say, well, Madeleine Albright wasn't feminist enough. You know, well, did she use whatever she had, whatever she was given at the time that she had it, you know, in the period that she lived in, the position that she occupied? She also occupied a very political position that required certain things of her um, and for her to make. Choices where you know national interests trumped feminist interests in many ways. You know, right or wrong, that's a fact. Um, she was part of a government, so um, so you know, those are questions to ask. Like, are we able to look at people that way uh, and understand the depth that they bring, and maybe that way we'd
0: be a bit more understanding of each other? It's it's all very interesting, and there are so many different. Perspectives that we can look at this through. In the upcoming edition of the journal, we will have a section titled Gender and Violent Conflict, but we're hoping to also dive a little bit into women in the realm of peacekeeping. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, between 1992 and 2019, women constituted on average 13% of negotiators, a mere 6% of mediators, and 6% of signatories in major peace processes around the world. It's been 22 years since the UN Security Council adopted Resolution 1322. 25 on Women, Peace, and Security, which you've written about. Little
1: children, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Which
0: affirms the crucial role of women in creating and sustaining sustaining peace. Can you speak a little bit to the role of women, not only what they experience in conflict, but also their involvement in peace creating and peacekeeping?
1: You know, I cannot believe that it has been 22 years since 1325, where we affirmed. What should already be a no-brainer, um, and then we reaffirmed it, and we've uh, super duper affirmed it, and we've gone and really made sure that we've affirmed it several times <laughs> over in many Security Council resolutions. And I'm wondering why we haven't actually actioned it. You know, I think there've been there's so many kind of disconnects in. The so-called women peace and security agenda, where we just fail to to action. you know, what is the what is the point of it if we weren't able to act, you know in Afghanistan or you know now with Ukraine or you know, in so many so many different situations that we find ourselves in globally, you know, are we on the side of human rights and women's rights and and justice and dignity and all of that stuff? I mean, it really begs the question. Part of the challenge of the so-called WPS agenda is that we reduced it to this acronym. and I've argued this point before that once you, reduce something to an acronym. It is a, a, a tick box. It becomes something that people tend to resist. It is uh, often talked about but very little understood and even less action. And you can measure it in terms of the money, right? Where I mean, that's one way to look at it, right? But it tends to be a concrete way because every time you look at where the money is, like with GBV or WPS or whatever other acronym you want to throw around, you can see that the money's not there. The talk is there plenty. All right, we do, we talk a good talk, but the money just isn't there. And we fail to recognize that women are actually out making peace and creating and sustaining peace at the micro level all the time. So you know, I'm not gonna go and argue that women are inherently more peaceful, although you know there are there are many arguments that lend themselves to this. And I think there's some truth to that. Uh, but at the same time, there is so much going on beneath the surface at the community level, uh, in ways that really matter. And at the end of the day, what I've seen in every single conflict I've worked in is that women aren't only the peacemakers, I mean they have they tend to have more to lose, they've got more at stake, they are also the social safety net. They know who needs help, how to help them, how to reach them, what they need, all manner of support. And they do that um, organically in countries everywhere, all around the world. That's just the setup. And there's been research to prove all of that as well. So the fact that we don't have enough women peacemakers and peacekeepers and women at the peacekeeping table time and again, I mean, these are all UN-driven structures where we don't even have a woman in senior leadership. I mean, how many years of the United Nations? You know, 75, 70 something, right? And we still don't have a female secretary general. Uh, Is it because we can't find any that are qualified? I don't think so. I mean, I think we really need to look at the institutions that are pushing these agendas and make sure that they are representative of of the story that they're telling and the policy that they're pushing. I think there was a lot of criticism recently um, for a WFP delegation, uh, I think it was for Ukraine, that included zero women, I mean, none. And there's, we see that happening all the time. And I think, wow, you know, I look at these images and hear these stories and I think we're back in the Mm fifties and I'm shocked that we still need to say, what about women? Where are the women? Because they should just be there and there should be no women peace and security agenda. There should be a peace and security agenda where women are present because they deserve to be, because they have a stake in it, not because it's a W or because it's an acronym or because we have to or because the UN said so, but because they are a part of the population and a critical part and probably a more effective part when it comes to these kinds of conversations. So what is wrong with us
0: is what I would say about that. That is a fantastic answer. And and I hope that this next question will let you get at a little bit of what our listeners can do next. They listen to this. They're feeling inspired. They're getting angry. You mentioned in your TED Talk, which I've watched a few times, admittedly, this phrase, Start Where You Stand, the title of a poem, which you saw spray painted on a wall in an emergency setting in Nepal. What meaning does that hold for you? And what can other people take away from that?
1: Well, you know, it was so beautiful that moment that I saw it. It was like five o'clock in the morning in Kathmandu. It was the day that the second earthquake was going to happen. Of course, I didn't know that but at the time. Everything seemed calm, although the country was still reeling from the, the first earthquake. And you know, seeing that really—I didn't know it was a poem. I didn't know where it had come from. It was just spray painted on a wall. And I stood in front of it and I thought, you know, that's exactly what I wish people understood. And because I get the question, I had gotten the question forever. Yeah, I want to do something. What can I do? But I don't want to do it the way you do it. And I said, look, I chose to do this all around the world for reasons that are my own. But there, this happens everywhere. This problem exists everywhere, right in your own neighborhood and on your street, and maybe even in your own home. So if you wake up and look around you, you'll start to see that. And you'll realize that the small gestures and the micro actions are the ones that are going to make a difference. And you can take charge. You've got agency. You can handle those. You can action those right in your own home right now literally where you stand because they are there all around you and if you you have two choices you can either do something about the things that you see in the spaces you occupy when you see them or you can shrug as we do globally, kind of a collective shrug and say, oh, well, it's too big. It's too messy. I don't know where to start, or I don't see it, or I didn't do it. So it's not my problem. You know, and that tends to be the global response, right? A collective shrug. But if you actually understand that this is happening everywhere and it is happening to you, you know, I keep saying one in three, which I think underestimates the reality. This is all of us all the time. You know, and even the idea that we, many of us, the Female population, at least, live with this fear of violence, that for me is a form of violence. And I've said that so many times the idea that I have to live my life restricted, controlled, curbed, limited in terms of my freedom and mobility and my rights and choices and all of that because this problem, this crime exists. So if we took on responsibility as individuals and exhibited some of that good behavior, at least, you know, I think behavior is contagious. So you might as well make it good. So take take on that challenge and do what you can with what you have where you are. Does that mean having a conversation with your kid or your friend or your, your buddy on the playground to tell him not to, you know, not to do that or say that or, or whatever it is, then do it. Don't stay silent because you being quiet is a bigger crime. You know, where, where are you? Where is everyone? Like, I believe that fundamentally we, we know what is the right thing to do. You know, we know what we know right from wrong for the most part. um, I'd like to believe in some kind of moral compass. You don't need religion. You don't need any of that. You have a sense when you are witnessing something that is inappropriate or uncomfortable or outright wrong. No. Can you do something? Can you say something? Can you stop things? Can you change the way other people think? Can you change the way you think? Can you rewire yourself? You absolutely can, and it is in the small ways, and those are the ones that are going to make all the difference, because collectively, like I said, if we alter responsibility for our little spaces, rather than looking out there or saying, well, oh well, uh, then we might actually make a difference, but until we do that, until people see it as their collective responsibility, a collective problem with a collective solution,
0: then we're not going to get anywhere. Small actions and big ones, just as much. Absolutely.
1: I mean, and, I've, and it's taken me, you know, over three decades to come back to the States where I started to say, you know what, I don't need to actually be out there over there, you know, in country X to be able to be effective because it's right here and right now. And, you know, and I live in New York and it's all around me and it's, it's on the subway and it's in my apartment building and it's everywhere. So, you know, there is, um, there are places and spaces where we can be effective right, right next to us. Or right, you know, or within us. I mean, how many of us hold these kinds of of attitudes and beliefs and we don't even realize it? And how many times have we been in situations where we've said, oh, you know, I really believe this to be true, but actually I was wrong. And now that I think differently about it, you know, I'd like other people to see that too. And I think that happens and that's possible. We're not just static beings, you know, we're multidimensional and we can evolve. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't look like that, but I'd like to believe that. Otherwise, you know, if I didn't have any hope that we were going to make a dent, I would be, I'd be marinating in despair. I mean, I'm already mad enough.
0: (laughs) I could keep talking to you about this for hours, but I just want to ask before we have to finish up here today, is there anything else you'd like to touch upon or you'd like to say in this conversation today?
1: I I love these conversations. I think they're so important. And I think every time... I speak to someone or you speak to someone, you might speak to hundreds and thousands of people who knows, but there might be one person in the audience who says, Oh, you know what? I didn't know that. Or I want to know more about that. Like if you pique the interest or ignite a fire in one person, you've already done an amazing thing. I used to say, like when I was, when I was living in Lebanon, that, that I, I'll speak to anyone. I'll absolutely take whatever time I have and speak to anyone. I had an opportunity, and this is a bit of a crazy digression, I had an opportunity to do um, a, a talk with the contestants of the Miss Lebanon beauty pageant. And I was asked to do, I was offered the space, and I said, hell yeah, I'll do it. And I got so much pushback, but that's not feminist. And I said, no, no, no. These girls deserve for whatever they're doing and whoever they are and whatever we think of beauty pads. They have probably have no one's ever probably taken the time to talk to them about these kinds of things. You know, and once you hear it and once you see it, you'll never unsee it. And sure enough, you know, I was talking to these girls and yes, they're concerned about their bikini competition and Botox and their hair and the blow dry and whatever. And I said, you know, here's what here's what you represent, here's the impact you have on young women, here's how young women see their own bodies, here's how eating disorders are happening younger and younger, here's what violence looks like, here's what you can do, here is how the beauty industry can disrupt. It was around the time that the beauty pageant from Peru uh, caught global attention because the women went up to the microphone during their bathing suit segment or whatever it was, to announce their name and their measurements. And instead of announcing body measurements, you've probably heard the story, said, well, my name is Maria and my measurements are 87% of women in this country have experienced some form of violence. Bang. And the next one came up and said, my name is so-and-so and women in this country are paid X amount for every man's dollar. Bang. And then like the next thing, and they just like threw out these statistics that left the audience speechless. I mean, they used their beauty to disrupt. And I thought it was awesome. So anyway, here I am telling these women this story and and, um, and sure enough, 50 girls. And one of them came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you've know, you set off a bomb in my heart and I, I can't believe what I've heard and no one ever told me this before. And I said, you know, it just, it proves that everybody's worth your time, you know mm-hmm. and you never know what is gonna make a difference and to whom and how and what they're gonna do with that information. Um, so that's what
0: I would say. That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast hosted by the Brown Journal of World Affairs. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much to Dr. Abirate for the opportunity to speak with you today. We'll see you next time.